0: Let's then take a look at the cross from this little bit different platform. And I kind of hinted at it in the last section. By the way, if you didn't get any of these, they're going to be up here afterwards too if you want to get some of those. We'll use it tomorrow a little bit to talk to you. I'll explain it at the end of this if I remember. We'll actually leave you today because the part we're going to share on the cross now um, will actually leave you at a, a pretty difficult moment, quite honestly. Some of us who are hanging around having pizza may talk some further, talk it out a bit more, but uh, it will at least give you some things to ruminate on. And uh, I won't have time for Q&A uh, today, but tomorrow morning uh, I'll try and start with uh, what do you want to talk about from that that you processed overnight. So if I forget that in the morning, you could remind me because I'm not really necessarily following a script here. So let's talk about then the cross as punishment or the cross as cure. Now, I'm going to concede right out of the box that most of the language of the Old Testament that talks about the cross is the language of punishment. The chastisement of our peace fell upon Him. The view of wrath from the Old Testament is very much a God of vengeance. Very much. That's how we understand it. I think when you go back and read the Old Testament through the grid of the new and some of the things we share this weekend, I think you'll find a whole different God in the Old Testament than the one that, that religion embellishes from there religion, for this to survive, this is, among all the other things we said, it's a lot of work, it's incredibly frustrating, and if you're just a, uh, a spectator in religion, it's incredibly boring. I think religion needs a vengeful God to survive. You've got to have an angry God who's willing to do things worse to you than church. The old way of looking at church. To get you to endure it. And... Uh, Hell makes a pretty good case for that, you know This is, this is not as bad as hell, so we're going to just <laughs> sit through this for a couple hours a week, then we're good, and uh, it's just worth doing. It's worth giving God his place, you know. So a lot of the language of the Old Covenant does play up the punishment aspect of it. and I think from our side of it, if you're talking about how I look at the cross, you could really the punishment thing, as I said, would work if that was you know Gods needed justice. He executes it on the Son, pun intended. I don't have to get what I deserve. And from our standpoint, it looks like that. But I also remember everything in the Old Covenant is written through this grid of shame. Hebrews 9 and 10. The Old Covenant and its sacrifices could never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So this grid of shame that makes me feel unworthy, that when God's presence gets near me, I feel suffocated in my sinfulness And fallenness, and I deserve to die, and Abraham stretched out before the throne, or Hosea saying, What shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's all honest reflections of the shame induced life that the fall has brought. And so, yes, when, when you are overwhelmed with shame, punishment executed against the wrong person, an innocent victim takes my place on the cross, that's great news. Except it leaves you with, What is God all about? I mean, how did God set up a universe where the only way it could work is whacking and killing and vengeance? But I, I, tell you, I was in a church, a cathedral, in Albi, France a number of years ago, and I was traveling through the southern regions of France with the uh, In My Father's Vineyard book, which they'd translated into French. And I was driving to speak at this one group of folks, and as we're driving through the countryside, I see this cathedral standing in the middle of what I thought was a wheat field. I mean, I see a huge cathedral in the middle of nowhere. And I said, what is that? He says, cathedral. I said, where is that? He said, it's downtown, Albi, France. <laughs> How big is Albi? 100,000 people. I couldn't even see a town. This cathedral is 100 yards high, it's 300 yards long, it's 100 yards wide, it's huge. And I'm uh, thinking, what does this, this village have this thing for? So we went downtown. By the time we started hitting the city, it was a long ways to get downtown to where the cathedral finally was. I'm telling you, I could, when I first saw the cathedral, I saw no evidence of a city. And uh, we're standing dwarfed by this thing, and you, we took a tour of it. It is the only painted ceiling cathedral outside of Italy. It's just like the Sistine Chapel. It's that whole 300 yards across the roof, which is 100 yards in the air. You can't even see it. I mean, you're in there with binoculars going, what is up there? It's the whole history of the Bible from Adam and Eve in the garden in the very back all the way through Old Testament history, New Testament history, and then the wall, which now this wall, how big is this wall in front of the, behind the altar? It's 100 yards wide by 100 yards tall. Okay? That's how big that wall is. You know what's on that wall? The last judgment seat of Christ. On that wall is Jesus standing on his throne sending the damned to hell. And in the bottom of that fresco, across the whole bottom of the, behind, this is what's right behind the altar. This is what every worshiper who goes to, it's still a functioning cathedral, every worshiper sits there and across the bottom in 17 foot high panels, that's how high these bottom panels are, 17 feet high, are how each of the seven deadly sins are punished in hell. And it's gruesome, it's. You know, the greedy, I don't remember them all, I remember the greedy people were tied up in chains by devils and they were pouring molten gold down their throats and they were screaming in anguish. And gluttony was a whole other thing. And it just went on and on. It just said, there. This is what Rome wants you to think about on a Sunday morning when you come to worship. Because you need something worse to survive. Beneath that entire cathedral, in the bottom story, beneath the actual cathedral part, is a prison, dungeon, 100 yards wide, 300 yards long. Cathedral was built because there was a group of Albi Jensens. We don't know what they believed, other than all Rome says of them is that they were anti Papists. They decided we don't need to follow the Pope to follow Christ. The church built the cathedral in Albi, France, in 1200. Like from 1200 to 1350. It took 150 years to build the cathedral. As they're building that cathedral in Albi, France, they're arresting people who are not submitted to the Pope. They're torturing them in hopes of getting them to swear allegiance to the Pope. Um, Over the course of building that cathedral and using the dungeon in the basement while they were building the cathedral, 60,000 Albi Jensen's were slaughtered for not submitting their lives to the Pope. Now, your religion's pretty bad if that's how you have to sustain it. Here are people probably just like us who said, you know what, I don't need all that. It's Jesus I want to follow. And if you've got a good reading in the New Testament, you come out going, it's Jesus I want to follow. They were killed. And the imagery they want to invoke in the minds of people to this day is, here's what it's at the end of the age. Here's what you're going to suffer if you don't get it right here. So the language of the Old Covenant, as we look toward the New, is through the grid of that shame that that stuff is meant to motivate. I said everything in our world revolves around shame. When I talk about shame-based behaviors, I'm not just talking about Adam and Eve feeling naked and hiding in the bushes. That's a part of it. Pity parties is definitely a part of shame. You know, I'm worthless. God doesn't love me. I'm just nothing. Yeah, that's part of shame. Boasting is part of shame. Boasting is the other side of shame. Read most Christian magazines today. The largest this, the most that. It's all competitive. Competitive is the result of shame-based behaviors. Gossip is a shame-based behavior. The reason people gossip is because we'll feel better about ourselves if we'll get together and tear down Lindsay. Then we feel better about us. Gossip is all about competitive righteousness. Religion is all about competition because anybody who's... Remember how even Paul talked about his own religion? Circumcised the eighth day as to the law found false as to zeal, for the, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. He's establishing his credential as if anybody's got a reason to boast... I, far more. Boasting is always competitive. Boasting always uses the language of larger, bigger, whatever, or largest, biggest. Comparatives and superlatives because religion is all about competing. When people ask me, I'm hanging out with different groups of people, particularly more organized groups of people than you guys are, very disorganized group of people. and So we don't all relate to each other in any formal way. But when I'm with more organized groups of that, I often get asked as I'm leaving, what do you think of our group? Do you think our group was healthy? Do you think it was relational? Do you think it was this? And I said, I'm not even going to try and answer that question. I I wasn't among you to judge you, to sort that out. So I said, but you could answer it this way quite easily. What happens more in your life together as a people? Does gossip happen more or confession happen more? If confession happens, and I don't mean the enforced confession of people who are trying to manipulate folks. Yeah, with a gun to your head. I mean just the confession of people live open and honest lives. They're not trying to be better than they are. They're not trying to fake a righteousness they don't have. The people as you live together, is it more authentic and open? Or is it more gossip-based because we're really only honest about each other when each other's not in the room? And that usually tells me all I need to know about a group of people. I think people who understand the cross are very confessional. And I don't mean they're sitting around confessing their sins to each other. I don't mean that. I just mean... That they don't live fake lives. They don't try to be what they're not. They don't try to be any better than they are. They don't try to be any further down the road than they are. But in religious settings, there's always a competition. You feel it just walking in a group of people. Who's most spiritual? Who's less spiritual? Most spiritual gets to be on the worship team. Less spiritual has to work in the nursery. You know, and, and it's just... Because <laughs> we'll let anybody work in the nursery. But on stage, you know, you got to be at a certain level for that. And the whole idea of this pecking order of spirituality, all of that relates to this same sense of shame. In fact, religion, I'll say this about religion, rebellion is a shame avoidance system. It's ignore your shame, do whatever feels good, and you try and convince everybody you're okay no matter what you're doing because shame's just a fabrication of religion. That's what, you, that's what rebellious people deal with, shame. Religion is a shame management system. We try and take people's sense of shame. They feel bad. They don't feel like they belong. And we're going to manipulate that shame to make them act better. So we say things like, man, if you miss this, you're missing the last, best, great thing God's doing on the earth. Shame-based. Yeah, if you don't do this, God's not going to. Shame-based. Every bit of marketing from Madison Avenue is shame-based. You're not driving the right car. You're not wearing the right clothes. You're not wearing the right scent. You're not, you know, whatever. It's just... It's shame-based. If you get it right, you get with the in crowd. If you, it's all based on our sense of not feeling like we belong. And then rewards in a shame management system, If the more you conform, the more rewards you get. The nicer people are to you, the more authority you can have, the, you know, all that. And the less you conform... We use shame then as a weapon. So we want to shun people, make them feel ashamed. you You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Shame, shame, shame. Shame is a wonderful way to manipulate people because we all have it if you haven't been to the cross. If you don't have a revelation of the cross, you are so easily manipulated by your sense of shame. And when you're a good preacher in religion, you're very effective at manipulating people's shame. How do I know? I've done it. I know how to do it. I know how to do it with you. I could make you go away from this weekend thinking you had the most incredibly cathartic experience in the world by just manipulating your sense of shame to get you to do some outrageous things and you would go away feeling pretty holy at the end of it unless you've been to the cross, in which case you'd walk out here feeling pretty manipulated. Because shame is just, it's there. And the only way to deal with shame in a shame management system is you've got to be better than the people around you. Empirically, I know there's nothing, even when I was a good little Pharisee, I knew that in my honest moments, I was not righteous enough to earn anything from God. How much Bible reading is enough? How much sharing with the lost is enough? If you're going to get on that, if you're going to play that game. That was a story told. Some guy comes into heaven, and he's a cleric from some institution, and he meets him at the gate, and Peter says, Well, hi, how are you doing? He says, Well, I'm fine. Do I get in? And Peter says, I don't know how many points you got. He said, How many points do I have? He said, Yeah, how many points do you have? He said, Well, I don't know. I didn't know I had to have points. Oh, yeah, you got a point. Points are important. He said, Well, like, how many points uh, do I need? He said, Well, you need 100 points to get in. 100 points? He said, yeah. Well, let me think. Uh, I worked at the soup kitchen for 20 years, helping people. With that that." And Peter said, Oh, yeah, I'll give you a point for that. A point? Like a point per year? Peter said, No, I'll just give you a point. A point? <laughs> so, I was, I was a. I was a he said, I was a pastor for 25 years. And Peter said, ah. point. I'll give you another point. Yeah, he thought about deducting. I'll give you another point. So he's sitting there trying to think of everything he can to get points, and he just can't get enough points. And pretty soon he he knows this guy he knows, a businessman walking by. He says, oh, hi Pete, how you doing? He's doing great. And he walks on in. He says, What? That guy had points? Peter said, Oh, that guy? He's not playing this game. And I thought, That's great. He's not playing this game. Don't you like that? You thought I was going a whole different way with that, didn't you? You were worried. Oh, no, dang. It was grace coming in, and it's hell in the hallway going out. No, he's not playing that game. I love that. When you're trying to compete for your sense of righteousness or worth, or you're trying to earn it through self-effort, your most honest moment, you know you're not doing enough to measure up. You're just not. So the only way to make it work is, for me, you just hope God grades on the bell curve. Remember the bell curve? So I don't know that I'm righteous enough, but as long as I read my Bible more than 90% of the rest of you, I'm going to be okay. I don't know how much sharing the gospel really I have to do, but as long as I'm doing more than 90% of the rest of you, I'm going... And I tell you, the the thought process was really like that. It's comparative. Because in our honest moments, we know none of us measure up, so I just got to be better than most of the rest of the folks I know. It's what makes body life competitive from the very beginning. I have a vested interest in embellishing your flesh and denigrating mine. I have a vested interest in embellishing my good points and disarming yours. It's weird, isn't it? Because you can't get there that way. So it undermines relationship. So I will say there's a lot in, the, in, in Scripture, particularly the Old Covenant, that looks toward the cross as punishment. Because from some sense, that it looks like that. But the New Testament begins to paint a very different view of this cross from God's perspective not ours not us needing an innocent victim to satisfy justice but a God who is the sacrifice himself not a God who needs it but a God who is it some of the language let's look at 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 because I excuse me 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and about verse 20 oh goodness no about verse 14 this is, this is Paul. If you know a lot about Corinthians, this is Paul's letter to, this, to the Corinthians, the second one, is, is noted as one of Paul's most personal letters. He's got a group of folks going off track to some false leaders that are taken over. And as Paul writes, and we spent a number of months, years perhaps with these Corinthians, he's writing the most intensely personal gospel, epistle that he writes. It's down to his core motivations. And one of those we see reflected here in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. The whole standard of Paul's life was based around, man, I am loved. It's not even his love for Christ. That's not what's compelling him. I'm doing this to show Jesus I love him. That's not what he's saying. He says, it's his love for me that compels me. Remember his conversion. Paul the Os- called Saul at the time, the Osama bin Laden of his day, on his way to Damascus to whack more Christians. God knocks him off his horse, right? Remember? knocks him off, Blinds him. He's in the dirt. And the voice booming from Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response is, Who are you, Lord? (laughs) you got to get this moment. He's in the dirt. He's He's come face to face with the power of the universe. If he didn't know who it was before, he knows it now. He's got no doubt he's face to face with Lord. But he doesn't have any idea who that Lord is. It's not the God he'd been serving. Who are you, Lord? And, you know, you got to be thinking, if you're out there whacking Jesus' people, you got to think his next thought inside is, and yeah, please don't say Jesus. Yeah, right. Be Confucian, be Buddha, be anybody. Don't be Jesus. And the next words are, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, if you're Paul, who serves the God that whacks people who disagree with him, what are you expecting to see in the eyes of the God whose followers you've just been killing? What? <laughs> Give me some language. Punishment? Punishment. Punishment. You. Wrath. Wrath? Vengeance? Vengeance. Payback? Pay Pay oh, I mean, he looks up at that out of his blind eyes and all that, looking into... What is he expecting to see in the eyes of that voice? But all the things we just said. Vengeance. And what do you expect... To happen to him on that road. You're on the wrong team. You've been playing for the wrong team for a long time. You've been killing people I love. What do he expect to see? All that we just said. What did he see? Love. He not repented yet. Religion teaches you you get love when you repent. Jesus teaches you you repent when you're loved. You will turn around. You don't repent to earn love. Paul hasn't even repented yet and he finds in jesus's eyes this affection this love the invitation i want to send you around the whole world share my gospel with people i'm gonna have you doing what you've been killing people for it's just an amazing moment but as paul talks about that through the course of oh he shares it four or five times in acts he shares it some in his epistles it comes up every time it's man now we know love by this i was loved By the one guy who deserved to whack me in the dirt. Who would have been fully justified to nail my hide to a wall. He invited me to be part of his kingdom. It's the love of Christ that compels me. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Did this verse ever make sense to you in religion? Isn't it another one of those verses you go, well, okay, theologically that's true, but we still wake up to the old Wayne, the old whoever you live with. You still struggle with sin and you go, what do you mean all things have become new? Nothing's become new. And I'm working hard to try and make things look like they're coming new. And Paul just says, well, all things became new. What became new? Your nature. Your life in Christ. Your being in Him. All things become new. Does that mean Wayne's new? In some sense, yeah. In some other sense, it means all Wayne's brokenness still needs to be touched by the King. Forgiven is easy. Transformation's tough. I mean, if you fail me, if somebody hurts me here, can I forgive you without exacting punishment? Yeah. In fact, I'm kind of asked to do that. Peter says, Jesus, how much time? My brother's bugging me. How many times should I forgive him, man? Seven times? Peter thinks he's being generous. The answer is now 70 times 7. And now we're putting in the realm of a year of Jubilee, the whole spiritual reality of Jubilee, which is no debts carried over. Everybody starts new. And Jesus is invoking that every day. I mean, it's an amazing thing, but, you know, we, in religion, gosh, I, I guess I'm a new creature. I'm told I'm that. We talk about being our standing in Christ versus, you know, sanctification, which needs to change us some. But Paul's not saying that here. He just said it all became new. All of a sudden, I had new access to a new father, and everything became new, even though, as he talks about his old man still needing to be put to death, the old man needing to be shaped and changed. We'll talk about that some more tomorrow. And then he goes on to say this. Uh, The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You've got to really stretch that passage to make that only apply to believers. That's how I've done it in the past. That's how you got it. You you know what? God's, God's counting. Of course God's counting. God's got sinners out there. They're sinning. If they don't get it right, they're going to go to hell. Of course, you go to hell for sins. That's what's in the book. The book says sin. sins are listed in there. And if you don't get them forgiven or cleansed or whatever, then but it just finally says God was in Christ. Really speaking about Christ's time on the planet. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Namely, not counting men's trespasses against them anymore. And women, that includes you too. Now that's, Wouldn't that be good news? Because everybody in the world thinks God's counting. We Christians most of all. The language is God's not counting. You're people that, you know, coming around another New Year's and people are to pray, oh man, I've told God a thousand times I'd never do this again. New Year's is coming, I'm still, you know, 40 years now in the faith and still struggling with the same stuff. We're counting. God's not counting. Isn't that great news? Man, I love telling people God's not counting because we're counting. We've been counting for each other. Well, I might not be the best, but, you know, you're worse than me, so yeah. God's not counting. The language of reconciliation, we mostly interpreted the cross in judicial terms, have we not? Is reconciliation a judicial term? It's not a judicial term. In justice issues, you go to the courts, there are winners and losers. There's not reconciliation. I sat in jury duty a while back, and a judge told me, as he was prepping us for service, he says, our jury system in America is the highest form of conflict resolution in the world. And I would like to have taken him... Out back with the First Amendment and beat him over the head. Because it's not. Last week I was in Iowa at a school board meeting with 22 committee members, half of them gay rights activists, half of them conservative evangelical believers, some of those pastors. They're fighting over an anti harassment policy for their district about which some want to include sexual orientation and some don't want to include it, and it's not required by law in Iowa, so it was a big fight. Now you can take that puppy to court if you want and the courts will decide it for you. And when the court decides that issue, there are winners and there are losers. Am I right? I walked in that room a week ago Wednesday night, and I said to them, we're done tonight when 90% of us agree on a policy. And they all laughed because they're sitting there half on this side of the table, half on that side of the table. They don't even like each other. They're the enemy. They've been screaming at each other in board meetings for the last three months. They're going, you serious? I said, I'm dead serious. We'll be done. Public education is a shared treasure. Shared treasure means it can't be promoting my agenda against yours. If it is, it ceases to be a public school. So how is it fair to our differences? And there's a whole lot that went on. By the next night, I started on Tuesday with them, finished Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we voted out a policy 22 to 0 for that school district. Now, what happens in that room is called reconciliation. Did anybody change their beliefs about homosexuality in the course of the meeting? No, no one changed their views. What we agreed to do was share the forum. Let's make sure it's safe for every student, period, no matter what. And they worked hard at writing a policy that said we're going to share the district and we're going to be fair. And we're not looking for the district to prefer me over you. So the district's not going to have uh, gay pride parades. They're not going to have Christian pride parades. That's not the school's responsibility. I walk out of there, not only has the, has the town have an agreement, something we have been fighting about for three months, But there are also people who were mortal enemies. Christian pastors, the head of PFLAG, Parents for Lesbians and Gays. And I watch after the meeting. They're talking to each other, walking out. There's a relationship that's begun. That's reconciliation. The language of the cross is the language of reconciliation. It's not justice. It's not the advocate, but the father saying, okay, we'll have to let him in. And it wasn't Jesus doing it behind God's back. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The mistaken notion that at some point on the cross God had to turn His back on the Son, to which the Son would cry out, "My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me?" That is the proof text used in religion to say God can't bear to look on sin. And now, I'll show you in a minute that's not what was happening there at all. That wasn't even that wasn't even what's at stake. God was it wasn't. See, I always hated John three sixteen growing up. I know some of you thought it was great news, but. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. And my thought was, if he loved the world, he should have come himself. Why are you sending the kid? See, my dad wants a clean yard, so he sends his sons into the yard to clean it up. You want the clean yard? Clean it yourself. Your dumb yard. I didn't buy the dumb thing. Yeah. You can ask my parents. I was one tough child to raise. No doubt about it. And I'm reading John 3, 16 going, oh, what? Jesus got the short straw, and The one thing I didn't like about the Passion movie is at the end of it, Jesus has gone through all this dying and stuff, and this tear comes from God. It's like God's a million miles away on another planet somewhere. What? God was in Christ. How could God not be in Christ? How could he? Because, oh, you know, yeah, mostly we're in each other, but, you know, on the bad days, mmm, standing over here. I can't bear to look on that. God was in Christ, reconciled, not counting men's trespasses against them. Reconciliation is the language of restoring relationship. That's more important than resolving the issue. Yeah. Right there. Jesus saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Then people say, see, what, what I was told about that growing up, when all our sins were put on Christ, and he was guilty of all our sins, God couldn't bear to look on that, and God had turned his back on the Son." Yep. Oh, and because they really need God. Not, they need you to perform better. That's that, It all comes down to Oh, uh, you, You're getting ahead of me, Sandra. I appreciate it, but you're getting ahead of me. We'll get there. It's okay. That's good. I like it. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us... The message of reconciliation. So he teaches this passage. It was all about motivating people to witness. And when he talks about us having the message of reconciliation, he's talking about the reality of reconciliation. When I'm reconciled with Father, then there's nobody I don't want to help get reconciled with Father. But I'm not going to reconcile some obnoxiously Christian exploitive... All our words for evangelism, if you'll note, even the word evangelism is all manipulative words. Conversion right evangelism it's all about manipulating somebody to get where you want them to get to Jesus didn't talk to us about converting people Mm -hmm. What we're going to see at the end of this some of that little chart thing I gave you that some of you grabbed it's how to live loved in a way that incarnates his life in the world the world gets to see Christ in you and when they see Christ in you they're they're going to want some of that when they see religion in you they don't want any of that you got to manipulate people into religion that's boring but when God makes Himself known in you, when Jesus takes demonstration in your life, believe me, people are going to say, man, I want some of that. The message of reconciliation is not just words we're supposed to say or tracts we're supposed to pass out. It's a life we live. I live reconciled to God. And having been reconciled to God, I live reconciled to you. I don't let anything get in the way now of me and another person. You can lie. I'm involved in a business deal with somebody right now, and we don't have any paperwork signed between us. And some guy, I had a lawyer who was going to look over my shoulder on this, and it has to do with a book that we're trying to get published. And the first thing he asked me, he said, you got paper with this guy. And I said, no, nope, got no paper. He said, I will not help you if you don't get paper. I said, I really don't want paper with this guy. To be honest, if he, if he cheats me out of this, I don't want to be involved. And I'm really not looking for it to be my provision, because God's my provision anyway. And he goes, okay, I don't understand this. And I said, I know you don't. <laughs> he said, but I need paper to look over your shoulder because I don't want you to do something stupid and hurt yourself. So I called the guy I'm in and I said, listen, you know I don't want paper. I know you don't want paper. The lawyer wants paper if he's going to help us, and we want his help. So can we sign a statement? He said, yeah, I'd sign a statement. And we sign a statement. We'll not cheat each other. Okay, thank you. We got paper now. So the lawyer asked me, you got paper? We got paper. Does the paper mean anything if he wants to cheat me next week? Doesn't mean a thing. It's just stupid, but to live exploitation-free in the world. See, what we know is, boy, people betraying us hurts. So you protect yourself from being betrayed. But then, if you get betrayed sometime, and you survive it, and God's bigger than your betrayal, eh? You're not so worried about it the next time. It's okay. I've had bad experiences working closely with people. I've had good experiences working closely with people. I, I'm I'm fine. But turns out bad. Turns out bad. I, The message, the life, is reconciliation. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Let's get to the cross. Sorry, I digress. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's interesting language. God made him who had no sin to be sin, not to be guilty of our sins, not to have some innocent victim throw the sins on him, punish that, we're all free. It's not that. It's not that at all. It's, I'm going to make him sin itself, the personification of sin. For what purpose? Language of Romans 8 says this in the first few verses that, you know, is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk every day in the Spirit of the Lord, for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the human flesh, God did in the likeness of sinful flesh, and in that sinful flesh condemned sin, consumed sin. The language is not justice, the language is cure. Now here's how I want to illustrate that for you as we talk about, because I think this is what really happened on the cross. There's five things that converge at the cross. We've already talked about two of them here. There's a father and there's a son at the cross. Holy Spirit's there too. Not embellished in this passage, but they're all in each other. They're all there. I've got no issues with that. But father and a son, sin and shame, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's here. Hebrews chapter 12, what did Jesus most despise about the cross? It wasn't the suffering, was it? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So sin and shame are there. And then wrath is there. Now see, we're all scared of wrath. Wrath is, we heard it expressed earlier, you know, there's the good guy God and then there's the wrath guy God. And we, we've got wrath as something other than love. And I think we get that maybe from our own parenting. We know from our little kids growing up, oh, those endearing little children, they're waking up from their naps, they're so wonderful. And then it's the kid that's doing for the thousandth time the thing you've told them not to do. And there's something about you, you just want to grab them by the back of the neck and just, you know, come on, you get it right. And we think that's the difference between affection and wrath. And we're not feeling very affectionate in our wrath. So we separate God from His affection in His wrath. But if God is love, if that's His very essence and nature, then how does wrath exist in God apart from it being an expression of His love? It can't, can it? So you haven't got the loving God and then the wrathful God. You haven't got that. You've got a loving God who is affectionate. Part of that affection is something God calls wrath. We look at it as human anger because it looks like anger but it's not wrath theologically is defined this way wrath is the full weight of God's being brought against that which destroys the object of his affection God's wrath is the full weight of God's being brought against that which destroys the object of his affection and the best example I know of wrath in my life is Sarah my wife I've seen wrath in her unlike anyone I've ever met I'll tell you the story It happened now 23 years ago because my son was two. We were camping up in the mountains and we just finished breakfast and I would kind of hunkered down in my hammock to read a book and Sarah was kind of deciding between reading and crocheting or something. So she was puttering around uh, stuff around the camp table to see what she would do. All of a sudden I hear this blood-curdling scream from my two-year-old boy who's off about 25 yards playing in a little patch of trees. And uh, this is not pretty, but I'm a dad. So uh, one of the problems of being a dad, particularly when I've got this in a hammock, which doesn't move from the hammock easily once it's in, um, I hear the screams, yeah, and I'm looking up to assess whether or not my son needs me to respond. Because I've heard screaming before that really didn't need a a parent other than to say, hey, knock it off, right? My wife's a mother. She was. She is a mother. She hears the scream. She's already running. She's not even thinking. She's not doing what I'm doing. I wonder if he needs me. My wife would rather run to a false crisis than not run to a real one. So whatever analysis I'm doing in the hammock, she's doing on the way there. All that to explain why she beat me to it. Screams from my son. I look up. Sarah starts running. I'm looking up to go. what's going on, and I now notice he's caught in a swarm of bees. And I go, oh my gosh, so I'm trying to get myself out of the hammock as fast as I can to get him. I'm yelling at Sarah, stop, honey, I'll get him. Sarah is allergic to bee stings. We have no medication with us. We are two hours from the nearest hospital. When I yell, Sarah, stop, I'll get him, does she stop? She's a mother. She later claims, I never heard you. I told you to stop, I'd get him. Sarah's not going to let her boy hurt one second longer, even at her personal risk. She runs into the bee swarm. And the most compelling thing from that moment for me was the look on my son's face. I'm now running behind Sarah. I'm a little bit behind. I'm still yelling, honey, I'll get him, I'll get him. Don't want you to get stung. Sarah's about five yards from Andy. Whatever fear the bees had invoked in my son, he, you know he's flailing, he's terrified, he's screaming. When he saw mama bearing down on him, whatever fear he had of the bees transferred to her. He thought he'd seen that face before, too. What was on that face? I don't know. It was running away from me. I didn't see it, but I'm willing to bet that face looked mad, right? Very mad. Mad at what? At Andy? No, mad at the bees. Andy didn't know in that last five yards as she's making his way toward him, he thinks he's the one in trouble. Oh my gosh, I've done something, I don't even know what it is. Whatever the bees had invoked in him in fear, he looked at his mom and he just, this look of absolute terror and he starts crying and Sarah scoops him up. And it takes him a moment to realize she's not picking him up to whack him a good one. And she's done that before too. She was picking him up to hold him to her chest and to run him out of the bee swarm. He finally gets that. And his cries of fear, don't have it, suddenly change to just sobs of safety. And Sarah runs out of the swarm, and I'm there fairly quickly after, and Andy never got stung. Sarah did. That's wrath. The full weight of her being brought against that which destroys the object of her affection. Do you get it? that makes sense? That's what wrath is. The wrath of God, the New Testament says, is revealed against all unrighteousness. The wrath of God is what will take this temporal, broken, corrupted age and transform it into a new heaven and a new earth. The wrath of God is the fire that's going to burn everything so that everything of darkness and sin and shame is consumed by God's wrath. God's wrath is, in the language of cancer treatment, it is the chemotherapy for sin and shame. Does that make sense? It's what cures it. Now, chemotherapy, I've got a a friend that's just went through some very invasive chemotherapy for recurrent melanoma that's metastasized in his lungs. Experimental treatment at the University of Southern California. Um, Every time he was in there getting treatment, we were down, my wife and I visiting him, just helping he and his wife get through this thing. 10% chance of the chemotherapy even being effective. 90% chance that it wouldn't be. What's chemotherapy? It's poison, isn't it? The hope with the poison is we've got this mixed in the right amount of brew that it's going to kill all the bad cells in you without killing too many good ones. It'll kill some good ones, won't it? Hair falls out, stomach lining gets disrupted, so people get nauseous. It's all part of chemotherapy because those are the good cells that are getting killed by the poison. Chemotherapy is controlled poison. And we hope we've mixed it in the right amount that will kill the disease before it kills you. And my friend, he just finished that treatment. He got his scan back a couple weeks ago. His lungs are completely clear. So that, that's just a wonderful thing. There's only 10% chance of even being effective. But the two tumors he had have completely shrunk are no longer on the scan. So that's cool. He's still got another 18 months of other kinds of treatment to ensure that it won't have spread anywhere else and won't come back. So that's a long road ahead. But God's wrath is like chemotherapy. It's what condemns sin in this age. It is what is going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. It is what consumes sin. And when God's wrath breaks out in the Old Testament among groups of people, what happened? People die. How quickly do people die in the face of God's wrath? How quickly? Yeah, you give them a couple minutes maybe? No. Man, people snuffed out right now. And we, we got that whole deal. Well, oh, God, man, don't take him off because he can't control himself. God's wrath breaking out in the Old Testament is when sin is to a It's going to infect a whole lot of people and God's going to take it out. That same surgery God's going to do on the entire planet at the end of the age. The whole book of Revelation is about God's wrath unfolding in a way that consumes this age and leaves us without sin and without shame and God's healing. What the cross was, was Jesus taking that wrath to Himself To cleanse sin in himself, so that we who are in him might be the righteousness of God. It's a precursor to the end of the age. Jesus took it for us to open the door into relationship with the Father. If sin and shame was that which kept us from relationship, then it's sin and shame that need to be consumed. And so on the cross when it says, he who knew no sin became sin forth. I, I understand that to be this way. Then again, words fail me here, but I think this is as close as... In all those texts I gave you, some of which we'll refer to in a little bit. um, Jesus saying, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is not the sacrifice God needed to love you. This is the sacrifice you needed to be free from sin and shame. And it's the sacrifice God gives So on that cross, it would be this way. It's not me going home and beating my 25-year-old son with a baseball bat to love you. Here's that deal. It would be me if this chemo... They could give my friend heftier doses of chemo than they gave him. But they couldn't give him any more and not kill him. Right? So this, this is what the cross is like. It would be as if I went to my friend and said, look, let's transfuse your melanoma into my body. I'll take your melanoma here. I'll go through the chemotherapy to cure it. And when that, even though it kills me, even though we give it in such a high dose that we're sure we're going to get it all, it kills me. this isn't medically true, but just assume we could take the antibodies in my blood and put it back into him and it would cure his cancer. To me, that's the language of the cross. It's God curing sin in Himself. It's the Father and the Son. He who knew no sin became sin. That sin confronts the wrath of God and that confrontation of wrath. Wrath consumes sin in the Son. It's the chemo that clears it out. So that now we who are in Him are the righteousness of God. Now we who are in Him. No, there's therefore now how much condemnation? None. Because He's dealt with it in Himself already. God has dealt with in His Son Everything that he would ever require of you or me. He's already done it. And so when I realize, when I get the reality of that, however, God makes that clear, it's more than just an intellectual, oh, okay, that sounds good. There's something innate in our sense of who God is. And this before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified from Galatians 3. There's some knowing reality where this comes home. My gosh, this Father loves me. The language of the New Testament, Paul's writings, Romans 8, if God did not spare his son but freely gave him up for us all, how will God not give us everything we need for life and godliness? And now we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not hype, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. He goes on this, what what Paul comes away from the cross is, wow, this God loves me more than anyone ever has or ever will. It connected him to the Father. It connected him to the Son. It connected him to the Holy Spirit. My appeasement-based view of the cross didn't do that. In the end, I might say, well, yeah, Jesus loved me. He was a good guy. He took my punishment that I deserved on himself. But what does it say about God? If it is, in fact, they took the disease, sin and shame. They took the wrath of God themselves to cure it. And in themselves, when Jesus says, it is finished, I think he means it is finished. Sin now has been consumed in the Son. It's done. And it took Him... This is not specifically spelled out in Scripture, but I don't think we'd be far afield from looking at the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross and darkness covered that whole time. That may have been the span of time by which He was consuming the wrath of God, or the wrath of God, better said, consuming sin in the Son. If it took six hours of wrath to cure sin, and we humans lived how long? In the presence of wrath? Less than a second. What hope had you of ever being your own salvation? What hope had you? What hope had I? If I couldn't bear a millisecond of wrath without dying, the perfect victim isn't God saying, okay, I've got this really good thing. It's He needed to be sinless. So that death had no hold on Him. So that He could live through enough wrath to consume sin in the Son. The tortures of the cross were not what Jesus was praying about in the garden. As horrible as the cross and the nails and the crown and the torture and the mockery and the stripes and all that was doled out to Him that we saw depicted in that Passion movie, among all that stuff, still doesn't get to the point of salvation. Which is not the sin has been, the son has been tortured enough for God to be satisfied with sin. It is that God in himself consumed sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that God has resolved in himself your disease. And when he stood that day in the garden and looked over, and don't think he wasn't there, he wasn't just there later in the day. He was there when Adam and Eve were talking to a snake. And the snake was lying to them about who God was. And it shook their confidence in the one who created him. And he knew that this would plunge the world at least into six, 7,000 years of pain and conflict and war and disease and sickness and betrayal and hurt and depression and anxiety. He knew all that was going to unfold from this one thing. And God stands there and doesn't stop it. He knows he's going to pay the biggest price for that, not us. He's going to enter into our world that we have defiled. He is going to take sin into the Son, into Himself. He is going to allow sin to be consumed in the Son. The cross then becomes the point of cure. Wow. Wow. To those who are in Him, there is no condemnation. Now, I live alongside God every day, not in the shame of my failures, not in what I lack and what I don't measure up and I'm not good enough. I live in the fact that this Father loves me completely. And He has addressed everything in my life that needed to be transformed, has satisfied it in Himself on the cross in the Son. Father, Son, sin, shame, wrath. Come together in that cross to cure sin in the race so that all of us who dwell in him might never know the kind of wrath that will come at the end of the age to consume a world and to leave it in a new heaven and a new earth. Does that make sense a little bit? Now again, do you agree? I see all that, but oh wow, gosh, that's interesting. Maybe it's only that, but I want it to at least make sense. I think it's mirrored in the Matthew 23, a passage we don't teach much these days, regretfully, because we're doing most of it. It's that woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites passage. Remember it? You do. You love the chief seats in the synagogues. You love titles that men give you. I mean, it's just all the things we're doing. People don't enjoy Matthew 23 because we're doing most of it. Spend all your time fussing with the outside of the tomb. You never get the inside clean. If you don't get the inside clean, the outside means nothing. It gets down to the last one. I think there's like 17 of these. Woe to you, scribes. Vicious. Just, oh, that's not the nice Jesus. Bring us the nice Jesus. The last one is the worst. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, because you say we would have honored the prophets our forefathers killed. What he's saying is, you guys think you're so good. You would have loved, you would have listened to Jeremiah. You would have listened to Isaiah. That's what they were saying about themselves. Oh, we would have never killed those guys. Uh, We would have listened. Jesus looks at him and says, I tell you what, you are going to kill the prophets God's sending to you. Who's he talking about? Himself. Absolutely himself. And Stephen and James and others that would follow. Yeah, the people who are going to speak the life of God in that day, they were going to murder. And Jesus said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this generation. Now this is, See if this isn't a world-class curse. I'm going to make this generation guilty of the blood of all the righteous men ever shed on the face of the earth from Abel to Zechariah between the altar. Is that kind of a big deal curse? I would think that's a big deal curse. Here's this nice Jesus, you know, I love you, Abba, Father, Daddy, you know, and uh, go your way and sin no more and all that stuff. And now he gives them this world-class curse. I want to make this generation that guilty. What's he describing for these eggs? And left to itself, it'd be frightful, mean, except what he says next. It says, at that time, Jesus began to lift up his voice with loud cries and tears saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like the hen gathers the chicks to herself. But you are unwilling to come. What is he saying? I think the curse he's describing at the end of that litany in Matthew chapter 23 is the curse he's going to drink on that cross. I think it's that curse. And what he's saying in this other little picture he gives like the hen gathers the chicks to herself. When does a hen do, do that? Chickens are not like puppies. They don't nurse. They don't come to mom for nursing. Why do the chicks come under the hen? When they're afraid. When a predator's near. When the hen house is on fire. The hen will cuddle the chicks under herself. She'll cover those hens. And when that chicken coop burns down, her back will be halfway burned through. But the chicks will still be alive underneath amazing picture, I think. The curse Jesus doles out at the end of that litany in Matthew 23 is what he's taken on the cross, the cup. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup is the cup that had in it Carmen, every bit of wrath you needed to be cleansed. Joan, every bit of wrath you needed to be cleansed. Sunshine, every bit of, every drop you needed to be cleansed. Wayne, every drop I needed, in that cup was, what that, was the answer to that world-class curse. What would cleanse even those that would be guilty of the righteous blood of every person ever shed on the face of the earth. And Jesus said, I'll take it for you. Amazing language of, Hebrew, of, of John 10, about no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, we know, said to Peter, don't you know I could call 10,000 angels, I call a legion of angels and get me out of here. Jesus submitted to the cross when he didn't have to. Jesus was no one's victim on that cross. Like the mother hen who would lay over her chicks when she could escape and raise another brood another day, she stays. Do you know what it must have been like? 9-11, our fellow countrymen, in the top of those towers, the World Trade Center, the shock when they started jumping from those towers, 110 stories up. To die on the street below on the asphalt. No one was trying to save themselves at that point. The reality, and firefighters, I guess, say this in high-rise fires, people in the face of encroaching flames will always jump. The terror of fire and the heat its just more than a human can bear. And if there's a place to jump out, they'd rather die jumping than die being burned. The only one not shocked that day was firefighters. That people were jumping out of those towers when they had no place else to go and the fire was pushing them to the very edges of their offices and they had no escape other than to jump out into the open air. It was not shocking to them that it happened. Imagine Jesus in the face of the encroaching flames, in the face of a chemotherapy treatment that would absolutely consume to the core of his being. Any moment of weakness would have called a legion of angels that would have ended it and sealed our fate in the doing. And he stays. I think this is the most amazing thing about the cross. He kept staying through it, through the torture, through the nails, through the crown of thorns, through the mockery, and now in all of that wasted physically, now consuming the wrath of God for our redemption, he stays. He stays. This has got to get done. We're not playing games. This is not just some oh, we got to do something so we look like we fix sin. What Jesus did on the cross fixed the reality of sin and shame in the race. It fixes it, just like chemotherapy would fix cancer. It would cure it. It would remove it. So that now we who are in Him, which we'll talk about all day tomorrow, how do we live in Him? What does that relational life look like? So that if I live that, I'm not going back now. If I really understand what happens on the cross, how do I today earn anything from God's hand? Anything. I don't. That's not where transformation comes from. It's not, well, Well, in the face of all the wonderful things God's done for you, Wayne, don't you think you should be doing this, this, this for Him? No, I don't, quite frankly. Because what Jesus did on the cross was forever secure to us that our wholeness is going to come out of this effective relationship with the Father. That was the purpose of it. He took it to himself, the whole bit of it, everything we needed, six hours maybe, of wrath to consume sin in the sun. Drank it to the dregs so that he could say to us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. It's done deal." I wake up and here's what the reality of the cross has changed. Let's just say, uh, he's in the back there, Talon, I'm going to pick on you, okay, since I know your name and you're far back there. We've got some other people beyond you, but uh, I don't not remember their names. I remember I met you last time, but I forget your names. Who are you? Lynn and Jim. Lynn and Jim. Hi, how you doing? Good. Well, let's use Jim now. Let's go. Let's use Liz. She's right in the back in the middle. Can I pick on you for a minute? I'm just going to ask you to be God for a moment. Would that be all right? Oh, yeah, that'd be fine. yeah, that'd be fine. I thought you'd do that for me, Liz. So let's say Liz is God. And here's the old covenant. Lynn. Lynn. I'm sorry. Thank you. Lynn. Got it. Lynn's God. Let's get that straight. And let's say, sorry, you. all the rest of you are my sin. Okay, sorry. All my sin. All my struggles, problems, failures, doubts, anxieties, angers, temptations, indulgences. You're that. The picture the Old Testament paints is there's God over there. Here's Wayne here. And the only way I can get to God is I've got to somehow get around this, through this, over this. I've got to win this. To get to the relationship. The more righteous you can be, the more relationship you can have. I, I love hanging out with... Sometimes when I speak in places, and they, they they write ahead to say, Wayne, could you send us an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture? Now, when I get that, I know I'm in one of those things they call high church, because they got to have a passage from both. And I usually, because what I'm generally talking about anyway, I always... Uh, let's do Psalm 15 for an Old Testament reading. I like watching religious people read Psalm 15 and feel like, yep, yeah, we've earned that. Psalm 15 is, "Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can abide in the shadow of the Almighty? It's the person who does, and there's this litany of things that you have to do. And I remember reading that as a religious person going, "That's me, and all those sinners out there don't qualify. And I get to get. There. Psalm 15, if you read it right, you haven't got a prayer. If that's the rules to get to God, you're done. Pack it in. I'm done. We're, and I, like, I like seeing religious people read it going, Oh, yeah, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's us, man. It's us. We're there. We're good. I love that. Because I'm going to talk about it later anyway, so I might as well let them know. There's only one. Psalm 15 talks about one person who could ascend to the hill of the Lord. If I have to fix this before I can get to God, I have no hope. Here's the new covenant. God, I'm not going to make you do this. Lynn? Now i got Lynn and Liz in my head both. It's Lynn. I'm not going to make Lynn do this, but here's the new covenant. If Lynn were to walk all the way over here and stand by me and be fully reconciled relationally, that's the new covenant. Now my sin's still there. See, you're all still there. And God and I just, what? I, yeah, love me. And I can begin a relationship with this God. And as I'm beginning this relationship with God, I, I, if, if he doesn't bring it up, I certainly... I, quite a mess over here. I have noticed that. It's quite a mess you've got here, Wayne. I know, man. I just I've had a long time. I don't know what to do with it. I, I treat them like friends, but they're not friends. They're bad stuff. And God says, you need some help with that? Oh, my gosh, I need some help with that. You bet I do. And out of the relationship, God untangles my sin. Does that make sense? Out of the relationship, God untangles my doubts. Out of the relationship, God... See, when you've got... You can't get to God till you're pure. And even the little game we play in religion, which is, okay, if we confess our sins, He's faithful. So now we've got this little litany thing we have to do. So we're coming to worship on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever we do it. Okay, now, that's a, first we should confess our sins, and then we've got to be thankful to God, and then we've got to, and we've got this whole litany, which is all what? It's all about making us clean so God's safe to be with. And it robs us of the very relationship God wants to have with you at your most broken. And God wants to come right up to me right in the midst of all this and say, quite a mess there, boy. I say, isn't it? You tired of working on it? You say, oh, boy, am I tired of working on it myself. I fixed part. I had part of you in a closet for a while, and then somehow you sneak back out again. I've never figured that out. And I've got doubts, and I try and pretend they're not doubts, and then suddenly they're doubts again. And then we do these really games with We go to these high cathartic kinds of gatherings of the body, where we're going to put all our cares on God, and then none of us are anxious anymore. And we come away from that going, "Wow, just I feel so good. I feel so free." And the next morning you wake up, and the anxiety's still there because nothing's changed yet, really. It's just in a wonderful environment of people who love God together. You can push that stuff away for a time. But that's not how we talk about it. We talk about it as, you know, I put it all on the altar and then I took it back again. What a horrible wretch I am. I'm just never going to get this right. And I tell you, it's so nuts. Here's how I know you understand the cross. If God is the safest place to be at the moment of your worst failure, then you get the cross. If God's the one you gotta kinda stay away from for a while, because I did that thing I knew I wasn't supposed to do, I promised God a million times I wouldn't do it. So until I can, you know, make this confession and usually we don't make it right away, usually gotta wait a few days because maybe God forgets. We play all these games with ourselves. Yeah, God'll forget three weeks from now he won't remember it. And we'll just bring it up. Oh God, you have to forgive me and oh from the East is from the West. God doesn't remember anymore. We do weird stuff with all that. Religiously, forgiveness is nothing more than denial. Forgiveness relationally, God God does not count my sins against me. But that doesn't mean God says, ah, we don't care then, sin all you want. God says, Wayne, don't you know this makes you less Wayne? Not only does it make me less Wayne, whenever that sin expresses itself around my wife or my children or my friends or acquaintances or people I pass in the world, not only does that sin diminish me a bit, it diminishes them a bit. You got it? And you're not big enough to fix it. The wicked man that I am, who will set me free from the law of sin and death? That's where Romans 8 begins. Ah, there's therefore now. God in the cross has come this side of it. He and I get to enjoy this relationship that I didn't earn and that I can't earn. And as I fellowship and commune with him, live in him, you know what? He begins to sort things out in me. And as he sort things out in me, I can... I can invite him into my most broken moment. I can get impatient with Sarah and yell at her about something and go in the other room and say, God, did you see what I just did to that woman? Not all the kind of, what a stupid idiot I am, 40, 55 years old, I should know better than this. I'm 53, actually. I don't know what to do about all that. I was going to lie and tell you I was 40, and now I was going to make it too long. I'm so confused. <laughs> see, now I go in the other room and I'll just say, God, do you see how I just treated her? You see that? Oh, yeah man I hate that that's confession see it the same way God does I hate it God what in me what do I not know about you that if I knew it I wouldn't bleed all over Sarah with that and God he doesn't answer me in that moment here it is Wayne three points in a poem (laughs) but God begins to send me on a journey that unlocks what is angry in Wayne that feeds off into Sarah or impatient in Wayne that feeds off into my children Yes. Do I, do I go back after my encounter with God and say to Sarah, I apologize for what I said to you a few minutes ago. I was stupid. I was impatient, angry. God's working on me. I am very, very sorry. You bet. That's part of it, too. Because forgiveness in God is not denial. See, we always say forgiveness. Let's pretend it never happened. God doesn't pretend anything didn't happen. God doesn't count sins against you. He doesn't factor it into the relationship. But more than anything, God wants to set you free of sin. God wants to set you free of the doubts. That, he's not condemning you. You're a bad person. You shouldn't have those doubts. He's just saying, whatever doubts you've got, I want to fix. Whatever sin still entangles you, I want to untangle you. Stop doing it on your own. You never could. We could fix our, you, We all know what it is to fix ourselves for a little while, don't you? We all know what it is. To, okay, you know, we really, particularly if our kids are really sick. It's easy to be righteous when your kids are really sick because you want to ingratiate God to answer your prayer more. So that, that works a little. Uh, You go to one of those really big revival type things and you just come away feeling, yeah, I really want to get right and I promise God. So for two or three weeks, you can actually not do the things you promise not to do. You can actually act righteous for a while. But you know as well as I do, within three or four weeks, sometimes people say three or four days, some say three or four hours. What you are comes right back. You can go on these mission trips. We go on these mission trips. We come back. I will be trans. Being in India or being in the townships of South Africa, I will forever be changed. I get right back in this culture, and this culture just sucks you right out of that again. The only endearing change is that which God does in our heart. And the only, and we'll talk about this more and more, the process is as I let Him love me, as I experience the love of the Father, then I don't need to grab for myself anymore. And when I don't need to grab for myself anymore, that displaces sin in me. I don't think we ever really overcome sin. When I live in Father's affection, I live free of sin. When I lose sight of Father's affection and get back to worrying about Wayne and what Wayne can do for Wayne's self, I'm right back to the same old Wayne. Because I didn't know, I ultimately conquer it. It's displaced when I'm in Him. And it's not displaced when I'm not. Does that make sense? So tomorrow I want to unpack that with you. I want us to kind of crawl around into this cross bit and if there's more questions and thoughts to come, we'll do some of that tonight too if some of you want to hang around. If not, we're going home. Um, if you've had enough, I've had enough. Um, no, I'm happy to be here as long as you want to be here. If you don't want to be here, please feel no obligation to stay. Uh, but if you want to have some pizza, we'll do that. We'll have some fun together. Um, we're going to unpack now how this lives. Because it changes everything. God's my best friend today at my most broken. And he's the safest one to hang out with and say, Okay, God, how are we fixing this? And he has ways. He has ways to change you from the inside out. Not only making you a different person for your benefit, and it's, it does inure to your benefit, but he's going to make you a different person so that he shines out of you to the people who are near you and rather than your sin twisting them your freedom will drive them nuts in a wonderful way and the demonstration of God in you will bring a world to you saying tell me about the God you know the world is not beating our door down to find the God of religion but the world will beat our door down to find the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has perfected in every way our redemption, who now is our older brother, is with us, Who was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. That older brother lives with me today. Take that older brother. This current podcast actually talks about this. Some of you may have heard this very it, but man, take the older brother that we really have, this Jesus, who is, I mean, I one of the things we talk about in the podcast, I think it's really important, is how we have so... Exalted the divinity of Jesus in our day, that we've devalued his humanity. I grew up thinking Jesus was only human when he was on the planet. Not that Jesus is still today fully human in the presence mm-hmm. of the Father. Yeah. He is God of very God, most certainly. He's also man of very men. He wasn't that. He is that. I had a friend wake me up to this a year ago in Richmond, Virginia, a Methodist guy, into the whole high church thing, but boy, he gets this. He says, you know how we end up with priests as confessors? got to go to the priests and cure your sins. you got to go confess your faults and get them fixed that way. Why did we end up with that? He said, because God wired us to need a human mediator. Because He wired us for the Son. The Son became man. He dwelt among us. And then as glorified man, He ascends to the right hand of God the Father. But He's still man. And He said, when we have... What the early councils and creeds noted was that All the heresies had this in common. They devalued the divinity of Christ and said he was just a human, just a man. So the councils and creeds had to embellish the fact that he is God and we lost sight of his humanity. And when you don't have an older brother, when Jesus ceases to be your mediator, you will put a man there. That's what he says, or a woman. You'll put a human there. And as he was saying, as he looked at me, and says, and don't you think that's just the Catholics either, brother? Because that's what you charismatics do. You have your apostles and pastors and all that. Brother, you don't have to yell at me, man. I got it. I got it loud and clear. Yeah. I grew up with Jesus, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, which he is. But I didn't grow up with Jesus' older brother. Put him back in that parable of the prodigal. Not the older brother fussing and fuming, I've slaved all my life, brother, come tell Put Jesus there. How's he responding to his younger brother out lost in the pig pen? Well, we don't know. because Well, we do know. Jesus doesn't put it in the story, but isn't that what the whole incarnation is about? Wandering past pen, pig pens, saying to people lost in sin, hey, you know what? Father still loves you, never stopped loving you, stands at the porch every day looking for you, got a robe, got a ring. Got sandals, got a calf, got a barbecue, got a party list. Any day you want to come home, Father's ready to bring you home. Come on, let's go. That's the older brother we have. That's the older brother I wake up and When I feel estranged from God and, oh, my gosh, he's so holy and I'm a piece of dirt. And you know what? Jesus, I need my older brother today. Be my way to the Father. Show me who this Father is. Teach me how to live in his house. I have an older brother, and the language of Hebrews 4, has been tempted in every way like I have been, yet without sin, so that I have a sympathetic high priest in the presence of the Father. Who knows? He knows what my struggles are. He knows what doubt is. He knows what sin is. Not because he ever fell to it, but because he faced it all. Make sense? Let's live on that a little bit. Take a night and... Father we just want to ask you as we leave here whether we even hang out a bit more or we all go but Father I pray you just over the hours we have between now and tomorrow about 18 of them just pray you'd salt some things in our heart that would be important for each person to see that will help them be more effective in living this journey. Help them be more free to let you work this out in them and So, Father, whatever that is tonight and tomorrow morning and while we sleep, speak in our hearts and speak in our minds and win us to who you are and clear up things in us that need to be cleared up. And Father, I just pray you would help this just sort out its way in us, not just overnight, but, man, now till the end of the age. Teach us how to live in your love and your affection, to live in the reality of the cross.